Wagwan, everybody. Welcome to the Dis Afimi History Podcast, where we'll be speaking about history and as well family history and how history relates in terms of Caribbean people um, for the present as well as in the past and how in the past, what that does and brings forth for what we are going through at present and what we can learn from our history, from our family, and take that moving forward. So I do hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you like it, please ensure to subscribe, like, and review. Thank you. just wanted to thank you so much, Danny, for coming on to the podcast and speaking about your book, Children of Unsearching Fortune. And I just want to let you know that it was just something that really resonated with me because it was what I researched. And um, this narrative wasn't really told. And, um, you know, just for, you know, just for you to be able to talk about this, because as I said, it's just so personal to me. I know that uh, it's something that you've written, but very personal to myself in the sense that, as I said, it just really resonated with me in terms of the stories that are in here and the, reminds me of the journey that I've taken to uncover all of this in my family uh, history research. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me on. And it's been really uh a joy for me to have people reach out and say, oh my gosh, I had a relative who had a very similar experience to the people you document in the book. And um, I think sometimes as academics, you write sort of forgetting that there these people still have heirs and there's still yeah. families that exist. And, and it's great to have the chance to, to talk to people about their own family experiences and the way in which this history might intersect or overlap a little bit with, with what they've had in their family. So it's it's a real honor to get to speak to you about it. Oh, no, thank you so much. And uh, it, it, it should be as well to be able for people to be able to use this as a kind of a, like a guideline. So we'll start. And then I just wanted to know if you could just be able to provide, a, you know, a brief overview as to why uh, children of uncertain fortune, what motivated you to write this book and the experiences of the mixed race children in the British Atlantic world during the 18th century? Sure. Well, I, you know, it kind of was a project that that came to me as opposed to myself coming to it. Um, the backstory is, is fairly simple. I started graduate school at the University of Michigan uh, 20 years ago, actually, in 2003. And the year that I got there, the Clements Library, which is a rare book and manuscript library at the University of Michigan, had just purchased the papers of John Taylor, who was a, he was a slave trader in, in Kingston. Um, he made a tremendous fortune. Uh, and his papers are, you know, a, a pretty kind of horrific calculation of just what slave trading was in Kingston and one of the worst spots for for uh, the Middle Passage uh, in world history, to be honest. And so I I had just started, I was a grad student. I wanted to study slavery. I wasn't exactly sure what that was gonna look like. I mean, I had just gotten there. And so yeah. my advisor uh, um, uh, was talking to the library's director and, and the director said, oh, we need someone to go through and like organize these papers. Do you have anybody in mind? And he said, I've got someone who's, he's a broke grad student. Why don't you uh, put him to the task? And so. I spent uh, a few months going through these papers and just chronicling them. And, and um, for anyone that's interested in the slave trade, uh, it's a really fantastic repository of information about that. Um, and I was going through and, and trying to kind of make sense again of just the horrific experiences that he's documenting as a trader. But I was really struck as I was going through that there within all this kind of accounting and economic language, uh, there was these letters that he was sending back to his family in Britain, talking about these children that he had with an enslaved woman on his cousin's plantation. 
and he had freed them and he wanted them to leave the island uh, in particular to get some kind of education because there were really no schools. There was only really one school in Jamaica in the 18th century. And I was just kind of unsure about, I was surprised, I guess, that he was writing to family back in Britain, asking them to take care of his children, a family consideration in the 18th century. And then from there, I, I kind of realized, wow, there's a very complex story about people of color in Jamaica um, really having kind of extraordinary lives and doing pretty extraordinary things. And I wanted to chronicle that to, to the best that I could. No, thank you. And because um, the book focuses on the lives of the mixed race children during this time, you know, in the backdrop of slavery. And this narrative is not really discussed much. So what inspired you to shed some light on this aspect of history and what significance does it hold for understanding the broader historical context of the time? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a kind of a hard balance here because Jamaica, um, your listeners probably know, was a pretty horrific site of slavery. And, um, uh, you know, it's it's hard to try to say, like, I want to add complexity to that story because the story really is about horrific abuse of a massive enslaved population. And that really is the story of kind of colonial Jamaican history, at least in this time period. But at the same time, I think I wanted to try to provided a, a lens by which to understand kind of this trope that we often say, which is that race is socially constructed. And I really wanted to show just how constructed it could be and see how much it could transform, even in a place as wildly racist as Jamaica in the 18th century. There still were these strange complications where white oppressors were bending over backwards to try to make this slave society work in some way that they could, knowing that it was a totally unbalanced society. And, and again, I'm, I'm probably saying stuff that your listeners already know, but there were 10 enslaved people for every free white person in the 18th century. It was a horribly imbalanced society. And um, there was sort of this recognition by uh, white Jamaicans that they had to do something to kind of create something of a balance or at least create more of a kind of shared solidarity of power um, among the free society. And because there was such an imbalance and because um, Jamaica was not a place that oftentimes women were encouraged to go to from Europe, there was a lot of sexual predation on enslaved women. And there were relationships which I would not describe as consensual, but ones that perhaps had a domestic element to them where free and enslaved women of color would have relationships with white men and have children by them. And that creates all sorts of complications for a society that's built on this notion that to be free is to be white and to be black is to be enslaved. So what do you do when there are people who don't fit that, that dyad? And what I try to talk about in, in this story is the ways in which uh, for, for white Jamaicans, they try to figure out if there's a way to empower kind of elite group of color in Jamaica to perhaps join them in this kind of horrific slave society, or at least to kind of create some sort of social bulwark against this very large enslaved population. And that's very different. That story is very different from what we traditionally think about English colonies in the Americas, because at least, you know, I'm, I'm from the United States. Um, I teach in the United States and people in the United States uh, our understanding of kind of race and how it works is that there's a kind of one drop rule of racial designation during the period of slavery, which is that if you have one drop of African heritage, if anyone in your family tree, a, a, a tree is, is of African heritage, you are black. And there are some certainly uh, 
ways that we could probably talk more in more complicated ways about that. And there are some areas in which it doesn't really fit that model. But by and large, that that kind of is true for a lot of at least the U.S. South. And here we have an English colony, which is even more committed to, to slavery, if you can believe it, than, say, Virginia and South Carolina. And yet it has these really complicated legal and cultural attitudes towards people of color. And so I wanted to be able to kind of talk about that to, to give a little bit more context to just the, the dynamics around race and slavery in the British Atlantic. And the other thing that I, I thought was really important was just to talk about that, that Britain itself has a very complicated demographic history. And especially over the last 80 years um, after what's called the Windrush generation of migrants from not just the Caribbean, but also all throughout the British Empire into Britain after World War II. Um, th there's been a lot of challenges in British society to try to recognize a more heterogeneous social state. And there's been, unfortunately, a lot of kind of racist backlash in various periods in British history. And I think what I wanted to do is to sort of add into a, a very strong pre-existing scholarship on the presence of Black people in Britain, but to say it goes beyond just sort of Black people existing in Britain, but actually Black people having families and very rich and very established families uh, with white Britons and with people of color uh, from Jamaica, and that this is actually a sort of much deeper history than we traditionally think. So th those were kind of some of the motivations to try to give a little bit more complexity to um, a slave society, which I think, you know, I, I, I want us to still be really engaged with Jamaica as a place in this period, even though it seems so hard to want to investigate such a horrific site of slavery, but to realize there are still really deep, rich, complicated stories, not just within people of color, but even within enslaved uh, history as well. So those were some of the motivations I had as I was writing it. Oh, thank you. It just, again, it just peeling back that onion in terms of those types of narratives that aren't really talked about. So um, and then what were the primary sources and historical records that you relied on to reconstruct these lives and experiences of the mixed race children during the 18th century? And how did these sources influence the narrative of the book? Yeah, there, there's a number of sources. I'll just kind of highlight a few that were really important to me. Um, again, the, the way that I got started on this project is just from personal letters from an enslaver um, to his family back in Britain to talk about these children of color that he had. And I found a, a number of other families where you just get these little snippets of their lives. So it was really hard to construct an entire life cycle because people kind of go in and out of the record. And, and as you can imagine, some families didn't want to talk about a cousin of color, right? It didn't fit their narrative of, of their family's identity. And so um, that kind of gave me some of the richest emotional language and, and kind of the deepest assessment of what those family dynamics could look like. Um, but a lot of the really helpful sources were were kind of the more boring sources <laughs> oftentimes yeah. the ones that were less emotionally laden, the ones where it maybe feels a little chore to get through if you're on the if you're working through them. And so uh, the, the thing actually that got me to understand that this project was feasible and that I could actually study a number of different people to really see this as a phenomenon because the book looked at almost 360 people of color go from Jamaica to Britain um, from 1733 to 1833. And um, I was only able to kind of realize I could do this when I started going through the, the legislative documents of the Jamaican Assembly, which was the colonial legislature in Jamaica. And one of the things that I just kind of stumbled upon is that there were these um, petitions that people of color were submitting to the legislature saying, 
hey, you know, we have all of these laws against us, so we can't vote, we can't hold office, we can't, you know, own certain businesses. Um, but, you know, I have a lot of money. My father has given me a lot of money. I actually went to school at Oxford back in England. I shouldn't really have to be under these same laws. And in most cases, those petitions were approved. Now, they didn't get full civil rights, but they got a lot of exemptions to a number of things that would kind of keep them in a, in a more subordinate position. Um, and, and so I was able to go through and I found about uh, 90 different individuals that had, uh, uh, or I think maybe more than that, I think over, over 100 different individuals who had actually spent time in Britain and talked about it in these uh, petitions. And then the next thing that was really helpful was I went through about 2000 wills um, in Jamaica, just to kind of see like, were parents giving bequests to people who were abroad? And I found about another 120 individuals there where, you know, we had really extensive discussion about like, I have a daughter and she lives in Edinburgh and she's entitled to 500 pounds. And uh, I hope that she never comes back. And just really interesting kind of language, both about the expectation for those children, but also what their financial lives were going to be like. And so those sources really kind of form the core of that investigation. And then from there, um, you know, I, I was finding things like novels that were talking about these individuals. There's lots of uh, anti-slavery pamphlets from the 18th and 19th centuries, which um, bring up the issue that, you know, there are these very elite people of color who are living in Britain. And what does this mean about the slave trade? So uh, those kind of rounded out the the primary sources that I looked at, but, but really those kind of correspondence records and the wills and the legislative records were the most useful. Yeah, because sometimes those wills were, were extremely detailed in terms of, as you said, how much and what would happen if they got married and so on and so forth as to how it was all kind of laid out for them to inherit. And then, mm -hmm. you know, one of the themes in the book was the, the complex system, as you mentioned before, racial classification in the British West Indies. Now, how did this system impact the lives and opportunities of the enslaved and of free people of color during this period? Yeah, it's a great question. For the enslaved, it, the law was pretty, pretty demanding. There was not really many opportunities for the enslaved to use the law. Um, there, there's more you could talk about if you focus just on slavery and sort of after about 1788, when the Jamaican legislature is essentially forced to create some sort of spaces for enslaved people to be able to lodge um, grievances against masters and overseers. But by and large, the law offers almost no protection to enslaved people. And so, as I, as I mentioned earlier, it, it can be kind of hard because for 90% of the population of Jamaica, there's really very little complexity whatsoever about what race is supposed to mean. It's just, uh, it's an avenue to, to extract as much labor and abuse as possible. Um, for people of color, though, the law does offer, I suppose, degrees of opportunity um, to, uh, I guess, for, for lack of a better word, one, to escape their their status as a person of color, which sounds sort of strange to say. Um, but this is, I think, something that is really important. And I alluded to it earlier about how Jamaica is sort of distinct from other areas in at least the, the British Atlantic. So Jamaica actually has this allowance that if you're more than three generations removed from an African ancestor, you are legally white and means you have all the same rights as any white subject. And that comes out in part because, and this is sort of what I'm, I argue in the early part of the book, um, because Jamaica by 1733, when they passed this law that says you actually can become white if you're enough of a generational removal from an African ancestor, they passed that law because 
it's really been struggling. It's been about three generations of of settlement by the English in Jamaica. They the English uh, took Jamaica from the Spanish in 1655, and they really struggle from the beginning to attract enough white individuals to the island. Disease tears through that population pretty rapidly. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's not seen as a place typically for white women to go to, and so there's it, the white society really kind of struggles to to reproduce itself. And they're sort of seen growing in tandem with this struggling white population is a, a large body of people of color because of these interracial relationships. Again, most of these are ones of sexual violence. Um, at best, they're kind of um, unfair relationships between uh, uh, two individuals. Um, but this population is growing larger and larger. And officials really believe that the opportunity to create some kind of stronger bulwark against the enslaved population, just to kind of keep it, them from rising up, because there's enslaved uprisings constantly in Jamaica. And in particular, they're the Maroons, who you know a lot about, who are these formerly enslaved individuals who live autonomously in the mountains in Jamaica. And they're sort of a perpetual war with the Maroons throughout the first 80 years of um, English colonial history in Jamaica. And so because of that, um, they really, at least white officials believe that they need to have a stronger settler society that can identify as white. So if it's not coming from Europe, it's going to come internally. And so because of that, they feel the need to empower, again, it's a pretty small group, but a, a kind of an elite group of, of color to say, no, 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 you're not nearly white, you are white. And for the next 30 years, they're kind of progressing with this idea that this is going to be how they form a really strong settler society that can kind of manage this very large enslaved population. The, the problem is that in 30 years after this, you have Tacky's Revolt, which is a series of enslaved uprisings that started in 1760. And it's a, it's a very, very um, sort of successful to a degree on the part of the enslaved um, revolutionaries who take part. And they, um, they kill a number of people. They do a tremendous amount of damage. It really frightens white Jamaicans. And they start to pull back on some of the concessions that people of color can receive. They don't pull back on this ability to become legally white. But those petitions that I talked about earlier, they confer fewer and fewer civil rights as time goes on after Tacky's Revolt. So what you see is this kind of complicated legal status where people of color are encouraged to have more relationships with white individuals so their children can be further removed from Africans. But the the, the result of that would be um, their children having full civil rights. And then on top of that, if they can't meet that criteria, they still have, if they have enough kind of money through either their own industry or from their parents' industry, well, their parents' exploitation, mm -hmm. I should say, um, <laughs> But they can they can uh, sort of buy their way into a semi um, I don't want to say equal status, but but to, to have some sort of rights that they would normally have, and that does actually enable by the beginning of the 1800 a fairly robust population of color who actually have a, a kind of economic power and they have really kind of elite heritages. They've gone to very fancy and very challenging schools in Britain. They've um, become doctors and lawyers, and they come back oftentimes with a lot of sort of intellectual and economic power, which, uh, you know, I kind of allude to at the end of the book, ends up becoming really critical for the transition into a free Jamaican society in 1838. And so that that sort of population of color who had um, 
been been part of that migration to Britain ends up being sort of the leaders of this sort of new transition for the island uh, in the 1830s. Yeah, and it's very, as I said, just very fascinating to know that this type of um, situation was happening during that time, because as I said, this is a narrative that's not really talked about, not really discussed in this type of a detail. And unless you are, as a, I'll use myself as an example, researching your family tree, you'll never uncover this because to come across all these records and to see what you've just you know, talked about and what you've written about in your book is, is all of these things, which is just um, kind of, uh, as I said, just very shocking to kind of read and come across and to know this all happened um, during this particular time. And so, you know, as well in your book, you discuss the concept of reproductive labor and could you explain what this term means in the context of your research and how it shaped the lives of the enslaved women and their children in the British West Indies? Yeah, absolutely. That's such an important part of not just the book, but I think of of this period of Jamaican history. And it's, you know, I, I kind of owe a tremendous debt to lots of people before me who've talked about this. And uh, Jennifer Morgan uh, has a really fantastic book called Laboring Women, which really talks about how elemental reproduction was for slave societies. And for Jamaica, it was especially important because um, Jamaica was such a horrific site of slavery. There was so much abuse and murder of enslaved people. Um, the sugar plantation regime was so brutal. It really destroyed people's bodies and they died much earlier than they should. It made it very difficult for women to conceive and give birth. It also created the sort of emotional conditions that many enslaved women didn't want to conceive. Um, and Sasha Turner has a really fantastic book about that. Um, and so, so reproduction becomes a sort of political issue in Jamaica because when anti-slave trade reformers and um, you know, black activists in Jamaica really push against the idea of the slave trade. Um, Jamaican whites realize that they're in a, a tough position if the slave trade gets banned, because if there's not more Africans coming in, then the enslaved population is going to go down because there's there's not natural reproduction. Enslaved women are not reproducing the, the, the population. And so suddenly it becomes really crucial that something is done to try to uh, encourage more reproduction. So there's these kind of half-hearted attempts to try to offer more protections for pregnant women, to try to do things that can encourage more women to give birth. Again, Sasha Turner and, and Jennifer Morgan are two fantastic scholars. Catherine Paul also has talked about this in Barbados. Um, that, 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 that reproductive labor becomes essential for the success of the plantation system. The other part of this is sort of the need, not just for the, the black population to reproduce itself, but also for the white population to reproduce itself. Because as I talked about, they don't want to have a situation where it, it gets so out of balance that there's going to be an enslaved uprising because they're experiencing that already. There are so many enslaved uprisings and it's in part due because I think uh, enslaved Jamaicans recognize the power that they do have in that society. They can at these moments inflict terror. And if you compare it to a place like Saint-Domingue, which becomes the, the country of Haiti, they're successful at it. Um, you know, Saint-Domingue slash Haiti is the same, has in the same kind of demographic situation as Jamaica was. So there's this imperative to have white reproduction be really robust as well. So what that means is that any 
any sort of sexual interaction between a white person and a black person has now been politicized, not just as a kind of crossing a moral boundary, but now it crosses a political imperative, which is a stronger white population and a reproducing black population. And so um, one of the things I talk about in the book is I, I try to chart this change over time that, you know, as I kind of alluded to earlier in the 1730s, it seems like there's a space of experimentation and what kind of race might mean and in, and perhaps of emboldening certain people of color to be able to kind of join white society. And as time goes on, that actually starts to close up and you start to see more and more of a, a animosity towards people of color. And part of it has to do with the fact that the, the sort of anti-slave trade uh, reformers and that, that that kind of movement ends up creating more and more of an antipathy against interracial relationships. Um, that's not their main uh, source of interest, but it becomes a sort of secondary interest to try to limit how much interracial interaction is going on because it it seems to cut down the two key demographic imperatives that Jamaica is trying to be successful at. No, definitely, definitely, definitely so. And you know, the other thing that the book discuss, discusses is the concept of resistance and agency among the enslaved and the free people of color. You know, would you be able to share some examples of how individuals in the British West Indies resisted their enslavement or sought to improve their circumstances during this period? Yeah, and, and I think that you know, anyone who knows much about slavery knows that there's resistance in all kinds of ways, right? One can resist not just by taking up arms, but one can resist in terms of how much, how hard you work or what you say to your master or do you have children or there's just all sorts of ways in which we can find or even just you know, having a, an intellectual life outside of your master's purview. All that is a form of resistance and all that took place in Jamaica. Um it just so happens that armed resistance was a, a, a recurrent part of Jamaican society because enslaved people did not want to be enslaved. They wanted their freedom and um, they would run away. They would take up arms. They would go to other islands. Um, so there's there's lots of ways in which enslavement uh, um, obviously pushed people to try to, to take circumstances into their own hands. For free people of color, um, it's it's a challenge. I mean, they are... are caught in this difficult position of being free, um, being a minority, um, and also in some ways having connections for, for at least the elites of them, having their own connections to slavery. I mean, the reality is that uh, when they had a lot of money, it was because it was tied to enslaved people. And so and, and for many of these uh, individuals that I look at, they don't see slavery as a problem. They see it as really um, their ability to have the lives that they lead. Um, and so resistance is a sort of a different thing for them. But one of the things that I think I was hoping to do in the book is to really show um, just the kind of complexity of stories that you can see in an island like Jamaica. And oftentimes, I think sometimes the uh, the way that scholars will, I'll just kind of I'll talk about how scholars sometimes write about Jamaica is that it just has, you know, sort of white enslavers and and enslaved black workers and that's sort of all we really concentrate on but there is a really rich set of sources of of varieties of experience that people undertook and um i think what i wanted to show is that there were individuals who uh were sometimes born into slavery and their mothers who were themselves born into slavery were able to successfully lobby 
their partner to free their child and to send their child away to try to escape the prejudices that they knew that they would experience. And so oftentimes I think that this migration is really one of free and enslaved women of color being able to um, put their children into positions where they could probably escape some of the worst abuses of colonial society uh, and try to make a life for themselves outside of a pretty tough area to live in. And so um, that resistance is more generational, but it, I think it's really critical for the the lives of, of many people of color in Jamaica. No, definitely. And as well, it just shows that they, you know, these women then provided for their children to have a different opportunity. Yes, it's in the context of slavery, as you mentioned, because, you know, just as an example, again, with my family, where they owned slaves, these mixed race children. However, they are then as well assisting other enslaved people to become free. So it was just, you know, just that whole, how do, how does this work? How does this, you know, manage type of thing is just really um, a narrative, again, not really told and not really discussed. And, you know, and again, another thing that you talked about in the book is education, right? So it's such an important aspect. Uh, and then of course, you know, how did, access to education or the lack thereof impact, you know, the social mobility and the aspirations of mixed-race children during this time, because it was such an important uh, aspect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, Jamaica, it's a spot of real greed. <laughs> it's, it's a, uh, it seems so obvious to say, but the implications of that are really far reaching for that society in the 18th century to the point of there's so little investment in social services, what we call social services now. Um, very few things like hospitals are hard to find. There's not a lot of churches initially. Um, and there are very few schools. Most people just kind of get tutored. The only school that really takes off is Wilmer's, which is still probably the top school in Jamaica today. Wilmer's is established. It does uh, uh, have classes, um, but oftentimes like there's complaints by the teachers at Wilmer's saying that um, the Jamaican assembly is coming in and like taking over their classrooms to hold business and things. So it's education is just not respected in Jamaica because um, why would you build a school when you could build a plantation that could make a lot more money, right? And so if you're um, a child of, you know, of two white parents, you're most likely going to be sent to Britain because those are really the only schools. Some people do go to the sort of new schools that are popping up in the United States, Harvard and Princeton and Yale. Um, but Britain is still sort of seen as the place where you're supposed to go, not just to get an education, but also to kind of receive the con conferring of, of refinement that's expected of a kind of elite person. And this ends up becoming something that actually gets applied to these elite people of color too, that they can go to school at Woolmers, although Woolmers does start to restrict who can come in um, by the end of the 18th century. Um, but you know, if they want to to have any kind of chance of being a lawyer or a doctor or having any kind of position back in Jamaica, they have to actually get that training in Britain. And so many of them do go off to the ends of court or they go to um, Edinburgh and Glasgow, which are sort of the prime spots for medical education in Britain at the time. Uh, and they, they become these sort of refined, uh, very well-educated people. In some cases, they stay in Britain. Uh, they don't want to go back. In other cases, they travel to other colonial spots in the British Empire. So one of the things I kind of trace is the sort of surprising movement from of Jamaicans of color 
to Britain and then on to India. There's a lot of people that end up going to India um, and because that's another spot where they can make a tremendous amount of money. But a number do return to Jamaica and they become uh, lawyers and they become um, doctors um, or they start their own plantations. Oftentimes coffee plantations are a little bit easier to start versus sugar plantations. Um, and so that education gives them the opportunity to take certain professions they couldn't otherwise take, but it also gives them, I think, a social status which enables them to live fairly elite lives in the colonies, even though they are still subject to a tremendous amount of racial harassment. Um, there is still a fair amount of, of um, you know, social intermixing between white and elite people of color in Jamaica. No, for sure. And it just definitely changes the whole trajectory of, you know, for them and their, um, their families, you know, for generations. So, mm -hmm. Now, you as well, you highlight the role of the laws and, of course, the legal system in the British West Indies in your book. And how did the legal, legal structures affect the status and the rights, again, of enslaved and, and free people of color and some key legal challenges at, that they faced? Yeah. Um, so Jamaica really starts aggressively putting in laws against people of color at the beginning of the 18th century. And part of it has to do with just you're starting to see that population become larger. And so Jamaican officials are just trying to figure out what to do about it. And so they initially pass a, a number of laws keeping them from voting, from holding office, from taking certain positions, from being able to carry guns in some cases. Um, and then you see, as I referred to earlier, kind of an attempt to carve off the most elite and the most genera generationally distant from African ancestors um, portion of that group by the 1730s. So they sort of recognize, well, we can't just con have all people who have any degree of African ancestry in them not be entitled to full rights. And so they create this, again, pretty distant generational difference. You have to be more than three generations removed from an African ancestor, but that does enable people to become kind of legally white, which is very similar in some ways to how the Spanish and the Portuguese and the French create their systems. So it's, it's in some ways very distinct from the other English systems, even in the Caribbean. So Barbados doesn't even allow that. Um, Jamaica is the only one that really, really does. Um, and then as it evolves, again, I, I kind of mentioned these petitions and those petitions kind of go in and out of allowing certain amounts of uh, legal tolerances by the by the end of the 18th century they become almost status symbols as opposed to really conferring a lot of legal rights and so it shows that um, those animosities are becoming more and more um, vociferous by the end of the 18th century um, but one of the things that's kind of interesting about just how the law works and how it affects people of color um, at least for the population that I'm looking at of these elite people who go off to Britain is that because they have so much money behind them, I mean, white Jamaicans are some of the richest people in the British empire. And in some cases they are the richest people in the British empire. They have huge fortunes built off of slavery. And so their children oftentimes stand to inherit just enormous fortunes far beyond even what some aristocrats in, in Britain have. And so anywhere you have an inheritance like that, you've got a family member who's ready to sue because they don't think that that person's entitled to it. And the British are particularly good at suing their family members in this period of time. They're a very litigious society in the 18th century. And so what one of the things I, I kind of found in one of the chapters in the book uh, tries to highlight how there are these 
really substantial and, and pretty numerous cases of white Britons suing their relatives of color, um, some of whom are still living in Jamaica, but many of whom are, are living in Britain. And they're using colonial legislation to try to cut them out of their inheritance. And there's one particular law that they're they oftentimes try to to land on to do that. And it comes out of the um, the, the results of Tacky's Rebellion, which I referenced earlier, which was this major enslaved uprising in 1760 and 1761. And what happens is that one of the bills that the Jamaican legislature passes to try to tamp down on the, the enslaved population, because after that revolt, they just say, we need to do something to kind of keep this from happening again. And so they pass lots of laws against enslaved people and against um, sort of their ability to move around the island, but they also pass laws against people of color because they're they're trying to say, look, we need to kind of create more distance between white and black people. We need less familiarity between them because that's perhaps encouraging people to see themselves as more free than they are, seeing themselves as more entitled to rights than they should be. And so the Jamaican legislature passes an inheritance cap in 1761 that says that if you are an illegitimate child of color, um, you can only receive 2,000 pounds. Now, that's not insignificant. That You could live a pretty comfortable life with 2,000 pounds. But considering that some of these plantations are 150,000 pounds in value, um, it dramatically changes how much money a person can receive. And so once those laws get passed in the colonies, you see people in Britain starting to latch on to that. And they start these kind of witch hunts to try to figure out if their Jamaican relatives have an African ancestor. And if so, are they within that three generations removal so they can be legally classified as quote unquote mulatto, which is a legal right. category in Jamaica, which means that you have African and European descent. And so if they can determine that that's true, then they can potentially take their children, their relatives, their cousins, their nieces, and their nephews out of their inheritance. And then they can secure these massive colonial plantations for themselves. And so there's there one of the threats that people of color in, in Britain face is that the their white family members are oftentimes lodging continual lawsuits against them to try to wrest that fortune out of their hands. And so even though they might be living fairly comfortable lives in Britain, it's it's sort of subject to constant threats in some cases by their white family members. No, definitely. I mean, that's a huge temptation, right? That's one big carrot in front of anybody to to take advantage of because I know that uh, you know, in my family that um, you know the the father went so far as to put a private act to have his children deemed as legally white, so they could entirely, you know, take you know have that as estate you know, provided to them. And then, you know, would you, you know, on this discussion, you know, is there anything that was surprising or particularly plain in the stories from the lives of the individuals that you researched in this book that you could kind of just uh, talk to? Yeah, I think there's ways in which the the degree of tolerance, if you want to call it that, could surprise me in some cases, and the degree of intolerance could surprise me in some cases. And um, so the the family that really got me started with this, the, the John Taylor's family, um, you know, he sends his his uh, two oldest sons uh, off first to Britain, and um, his his oldest son is seems just to be from the letters an incredibly smart and really charismatic person. Like everyone in the family like loves him, and he's just talked about as like this incredibly bright person. And um, he he really has a bright future ahead of him. And so one of the things that they try to do is to get him into the East India Company because if you go off to India. 
I mean, it needs another side of intense exploitation, but it can make huge amounts of money for anyone that was able to, to join them. Well, the problem is that just a few years before he arrives in Britain, the East India Company is getting really nervous about like, is there, are all of our officers, are they actually all white or are they going to perhaps be unloyal to us because they might have sympathies being of some Indian heritage or some African heritage. So they actually ban the conscription of, of officers into the East India Company just a few years before James Taylor, who's the son of John Taylor, tries to apply to become an officer. Now, the family knows this, but they still want to try to get him into the East India Company because they realize it could just be really useful for him and he could really go pretty far. And so they spend days trying to like figure out like how can they coach him through all the questions that might be asked in case they try to interrogate his heritage. Um, they There's sort of these bizarre anecdotes within it where they try to put him in different colored shirts to see if that reduces the darkness of his features. Um, it, it, it's sort of disturbing in some ways, but there's a way in which it, it was kind of surprising to me the degree in which the family was really trying to help this this in, in this case, a, a nephew of color, um, because it just was seen as part of a family obligation. And, and it, that was sort of interesting to me. But right alongside that, as you get cases, there's a case of a woman named Pe uh, Peggy Kerr who comes to Scotland. And she's, I think, maybe like seven or eight years old. And um, her father is writing to his brother and sister and mom back in Scotland. So you please take care of her. She's a lovely child. And they just reject her. And she's just a small little child. And they refuse to take care of her. And there's really no reason other than just like they they call her a Cretan and someone that shouldn't have been born. And you realize there's there's really a mixture of responses, obviously. Um, but it, it's it's hard to see that level of antagonism directed towards a niece or a nephew they've never met who's so young and they just take no effort in trying to take care of them. So those stories it, could provide some degree of like interest, but also just really, it, it could be really hard to read the way that families could reject their relatives. No, definitely. definitely. And, you know, how does your research then contribute to the broader understanding of the complexities of race, slavery, and social hierarchies in the colonial Caribbean and the British Empire during the 19th century. Yeah, I, I, my, my hope is again that it provides a little bit of um, of interest to kind of probe, in some ways, the complexity of of these societies where um, there are, I think, lots of stories still untold about a place like Jamaica, and I think there's lots of stories of people. Um, who were born into slavery or came out of slavery, who, as I mentioned again, really did tremendous things and led incredible lives and had a huge impact on uh, the British Empire. One of the things I try to argue is that, um, you know, these individuals end up becoming really critical to the the whole debates about slavery and race in the British Empire, not in an abstract way, but like they're literally going to parties with members of parliament and they're circling in the most elite rich circles in Britain. And they're talking about these, these individuals. Um, and that, that becomes part of the ways that people try to understand what slavery is, what it means, what race means. So they're really instrumental in their own history. I think you know, I, I was hoping to kind of show that this wasn't just a case of race being an idea that was dictated entirely by one group and that 
people of color had no ability to to take part in that conversation. I think they actually were quite instrumental in trying to push the conversation in different ways, trying to demonstrate their own abilities, sometimes obviously without, without um, a recognition of that. But my hope is really to show that there was a tremendous amount of um, diversity of experience in some ways amongst this population of color. Granted, they really suffered under very similar challenges, but that despite that, many of them really took on pretty extraordinary lives. And then the other thing too, is just to, to kind of, um, I think, recognize some ways just the, the farcical nature of, of the idea of race entirely. <laughs> and I hope we all understand how silly that concept is. And I think when you look at the stories of these families, again, bending over backwards to try to make sense of who these relatives are, when it's a simple, that's your relative, that's that's all it is. And and the ways in which legislatures are employed to try to create these bizarre, well, if you're three generations removed, you're white, but if you're two generations removed, you're something totally different. And you see that how that evolves. And you just see, I think, um, how, uh, how much people were trying to tie themselves into knots to make uh, a, an illusion into re a reality. And I think that that was certainly the case in Jamaica and even in Britain as well. Um, and, and then I think that the last thing is just to, to again, expand this out beyond just the issue of race in the Americas and in the Caribbean, but also how it does really have a big impact in Britain and how it did have an important place, even in 18th century Britain, which we don't think of as being a spot for the African diaspora, but I think it really is a critical spot for it. Mm -hmm. I would definitely agree. And then, you know, in your opinion, what are some of the, I guess, the most important takeaways from children of a certain fortune that are relevant to contemporary society, particularly concerning issues of race, identity, and social justice? Yeah, you know, I, I think for Jamaica, um, you know, my, my hope, I hope I'm not sort of repeating myself too much here, but my hope for Jamaica is that it, it creates um, a desire to try to really study this period of slavery uh, more intensely. And I, I think um, there's lots of reasons to want to say like, gosh, this is not a period we want to have to invest in more. But I think that there's a lot that we really just don't know about this period. And I hope that it can kind of push activists, especially in Jamaica, to, to really figure out, especially um, the wages of slavery on that, on that country and um, the amount of uh, money and labor extracted out of Jamaica that, that is still a problem for that society. And my hope is that it can help to reinforce a need for some kind of compensation for that. Um, for Britain, my hope is that this story um, just provides for people of color living in Britain right now, a sense that there's a much longer history than just the last 50, 60 years, and that they, they have there's a, a complex history um, that I hope validates their sense of belonging in Britain, and that I think can undercut a lot of the unfortunate, um, maybe racist elements that have come up in recent years, um, and that have really done tremendous damage to people, um, especially from the Windrush generation, people being deported, um, people losing their homes, people losing their pensions, losing their benefits, um, all in the name of a kind of imagined racial purity in the past that didn't actually exist. So my hope is that it kind of can can empower activists if if you know as a in a small way towards understanding that longer history. No, and just to keep the conversation still open about this particular time frame period, because I think that 
is very important as well. And, you know, I, one of the, you know, reasons why I just reached out to you because you wrote that book. So, I mean, I think that is a start, you know, to further this conversation. And lastly, you know, what impact do you hope your book will have on academia and the general public's understanding of history? And of course, experiences of enslaved and free people of color in the British West Indies. Yeah, well, my hope is, you know, for academia, I, I think, I, I have a slight worry. It's just a very slight worry that um, a lot of the studies of slavery are really focused on the economics of slavery, and and that's important. And I hope that we understand how deeply important um, slavery was to the institutions and the profitability of the United States. And I think that that needs to be outlined in really direct ways in order to provide, I think, a basis for a conversation on compensation and for reparations. Um, but I also, my one concern about some of that is that we're losing some of the human elements of slavery. And I also want people to understand how critically important slavery was, not just in the United States, but for the Americas and the world in general. And I, I tried to write about it through the lens of kind of human experience and human stories. And I think that those stories are so rich and so captivating. And I, my hope is that uh, for academics that we can stay grounded um, within all this on the kind of human element and uh, sort of slavery as a as a, a sin against humans and, and not just a sort of economic issue. Although those two things I think do need to go together. I hope for the public is that um, these stories, which maybe seem kind of bizarre that, that a person of color would go off to Britain and maybe it, it's, it kind of goes against their sense of what the 18th century was like. I hope it just engages them in more of an interest in, in, the history of slavery in general and the history of populations of color in the African diaspora. And that there's so many really fascinating, although also very tragic elements to this, and that that can kind of capture people's interest in wanting to learn more, because I think it's so essential to our world's current moments. And it's so essential to the world's history. And my hope is that in whatever tiny way it can, it can, it can poke someone's interest in that area. No, I, I'm sure it will. Um, as I said, it, I really resonated with, with the book and because it was so personal to myself. So um, I definitely really appreciate what you were able to write. And uh, and of course, the time that it took to even capture all that information to be able to put it on, take pen to paper type of thing. So thank you so much. I really do appreciate your time, Daniel, for coming on to the podcast and to be able to speak um, about your book, um, Children of Inspiration. Well, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please make sure to like, follow, subscribe, and write a review for the episode wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you.